Okay, the first reading is up there on the screen, Ezekiel. So, should make it there, Ezekiel 36, starting from verse 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them, because they had shed blood in the land, and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations, and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors you will be my people, and I will be your God. Now, I don't know if there's a slide for it or not, but I um, uh, decided to steal a second Bible reading spot because I think it's in... Oh, look at that, Kezia, you champion. Uh, yeah, second Bible reading for today, folks. Numbers uh, chapter 11, verse 16 through 29. Uh, chapter 11, beginning verse 16, and it says this. The Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting that they may stand there with you. I will come down and speak with you there and I will take some of the power of the spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. Tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed, if only we had meat to eat. We were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. You'll not eat it for just one day or two days or five, ten or twenty days, but for a whole month until it comes out your nostrils and you loathe it. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wailed before him saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses said, here I am among 600,000 men on foot and you say, I will give them meat to eat for a whole month? Will they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Will they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? The Lord answered Moses, Is the Lord's arm too short? Now you will see whether or not what I say will come true for you. 
So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders and had them stand around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke with him, and he took some of the power of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. When the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but did not do so again. However, two men, whose names were Eldad and Medad, had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. This is the word of the Lord. I don't normally do a Bible reading before I start, so give me a second here, I'll get myself sorted. Oh, that's right, yeah, <laughs> there's always something. Year 6 to 8, you guys are heading off for your time together. For the rest of us, keep your Bible open pretty much wherever you want because we're on a topical series and we're going to be jumping. Let me lead us briefly in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word as we come to a topical series. Uh, we pray that uh, you would give me clarity and insight uh, and give us uh, discerning hearts and minds as we consider what your word says, uh, particularly about you. Uh, we pray you'd help us to do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, it is absolutely right that as Christians, we have a special interest in the person and work of God the Holy Spirit. Not least because he is God Almighty. We are worshippers of the Spirit as we are of the Father and the Son. Trinity in unity but also because one of the more distinctive roles of God the Holy Spirit is that he takes the objective ministry of Jesus and applies it to the individual believer, thereby giving us the subjective experience of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and therefore knowing God as our Father. God the Father is often spoken of as being enthroned in the highest heaven and therefore in one sense distant from us. God the Son completed his redemptive work in history 2,000 years ago, therefore in one sense could be considered distant from us. And yet neither the Father or the Son are distant from us ultimately because God the Holy Spirit indwells the individual believer, uniting us to the Son and therefore to the Father. Uh, to use the words of a great Southern Baptist theologian, a guy named Millard Erickson, quote, the Holy Spirit is the particular person of the Trinity through whom the entire triune Godhead works in us. It is primarily through him that we experience God. It is through the Holy Spirit's work that we feel God's presence within and the Christian life is given a special tangibility. That God the Holy Spirit takes the objective truth of the gospel and makes it the subjective, real experience for the believer is an absolutely wonderful thing. And I know that if you're a follower of Jesus, you will agree. But like a lot of very good things, it also has the potential to be easily misunderstood and even corrupted. You see, it's precisely because the indwelling of the, the, the Spirit creates such a personal, subjective and experiential facet of our discipleship that misunderstandings about his person and work can become grounds for fierce controversy, especially when subjective experience 
loses connection with objective truth revealed in God's word. Now this, combined with the fact that growing in our relational knowledge of God is basically the, the highest human endeavour, is the reason we are absolutely right to think carefully about what the scriptures teach regarding God the Spirit. And so today we begin a three-week mini doctrine sermon series that I've entitled The Advocate of Truth, the Person and Work of God the Holy Spirit. Uh, in the final week of this series, we'll look at the Spirit's work in sanctification. That is how he grows us in holiness and empowers the church, uh, which involves discussion on what are often called spiritual gifts. In the second week, which is actually two weeks from now because we've got church weekend away, but in the second week of this series, we'll look at the Spirit's work in revelation, how he enables us to know God relationally through the illumination of the scriptures by bringing the word of God to light in our lives. And of course, today we're looking at how the Spirit has worked to bring about our salvation, how he takes us from being God's enemies to being God's children by lovingly regenerating us and applying the work of Jesus to us directly. And we start, point one on your outline, if you're a note taker, by looking at God's promise, his Old Testament promise of a permanent outpouring of the Spirit on all those who would belong to his kingdom. Now, one of the earliest hints that God would one day pour out his spirit on his people comes from the great prophet Moses, which is why I did that reading from Numbers 11. Uh, there's that incident where the Israelites, who are wandering through the desert on the way to the promised land, have a craving for meat. And whilst I consider such a craving completely understandable, given that they were on a relatively short journey to a land filled with edible animals they should have been more than satisfied with the miraculous manner that God had been providing them with. But like us, just like us, the more earthly riches God gives people, the more we seem to become unsatisfied with what we still don't have. And so the Israelites wailed, cried out for meat. God, in his righteous indignation, tells Moses he'll give them what they want, so much so that it will, quote, come out their nostrils. But amidst that judgment, Moses also realises that he's actually overwhelmed with leading such a big group of whingers. And so God tells him to gather a bunch of 70 leaders upon whom he will take some of the power of the spirit that is upon Moses and give it to them so that they also can share the burden of upholding God's word amongst his people. Now, 68 of those 70 elders show up at the tent of meeting, they receive God's spirit in a partial way because we're told they prophesied but did, didn't do so after. But two of those 70, for whatever reason, didn't make it to the tent when God poured out his spirit. And yet, and this is gonna become important later, and yet, God chooses not to limit himself geographically when he works by his spirit. God chooses not to limit himself geographically when he works by his spirit, such that these two men with funny names, Eldad and Medad, also begin to prophesy. Now Joshua reckons that's dodgy. They weren't there in the proper place when God poured out his spirit. Maybe this is an attack on Moses' leadership. And so he says, Oi Mo, make them stop. 
But far be it from Moses to get in the way of what God himself is very clearly doing. And so Moses retorts, and I'll put the words on the screen, Numbers 11:29. Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all Yahweh's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And so Moses, the great prophet of the Lord, would have been delighted if a day came where all the Lord's people were indwelt permanently by his spirit such that they could all carry the burden of upholding God's word and enacting God's will with and for one another. In other words, Moses would have been delighted to see what we have right here and right now, the church. Centuries after that event, God promised that the day would indeed eventually come, where there'd be a permanent outpouring of his spirit upon all his people. Uh, here's how it happens, and this was pertaining to our first reading. On account of their ongoing rebellion, God had allowed the northern tribes, remember Israel eventually divided into ten northern tribes, two southern tribes, he allowed those northern tribes of Israel to be defeated by the Assyrians and then dispersed among the countries that the Assyrians had conquered. And on account of their rebellion, the two southern tribes were captured by the Babylonians and taken off to exile in Babylon. But this created a problem for God. You see, it meant that God's reputation as being holy was coming undone. Rather than his name being hallowed among the nations, Yahweh was getting a bad name. Because all the other nations saw that his very own people had been booted out of the land where he supposedly dwelt. You can imagine the thoughts. What kind of a useless God is that? He can't even keep his own people in the land that he's set up for them. And so God acts to restore his reputation. He promises that instead of having his law written only on paper or only on stone tablets, that he do something new. He would remove the sinful stone hearts of his people and give them a new proper heart, a heart of flesh. And he would write his law, his will, on those hearts. He would cleanse them with water, a metaphor for being forgiven for their rebelliousness, and he would cause them to obey him from the heart. He would give them an attitude that was for him rather than against him. And of course, the way he would do this would be by permanently pouring out his spirit onto his chosen people. The letter, it turns out, would kill but the Spirit would give life. So, I'll read it again from Ezekiel chapter 36. Words will be on the screen. Here's what God says. For I'll take you out of the nations. I'll gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit. And note that's a lowercase s. So it's like a new attitude, new mind. I'll give you a new heart and a new mind. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27 here is presumably how it's going to happen. I will put my spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit, in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So the promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the promises leading up to it, actually show us what God had in mind regarding the Spirit's role. He would enable all God's people to prophesy. That is, I take it, to speak God's truth 
to one another. You might even say speaking the truth in love to build one another up. And to bear the burden of helping one another live in accordance with God's rule. And he would move us to do something that our sinful hearts had previously made impossible. He would enable us to live in genuine obedience to his word. Is that the first thing you think of when you think of the person work of the Holy Spirit? Giving you the ability to live in obedience to God's word and to serve his people. Now given that Jesus is the capital W, Word of God, his fullest and final personal revelation of himself, then it simply must be the case that anyone who trusts in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, anyone who is obedient to Christ, is only so because the Spirit has permanently now come upon them and changed their rebellious hearts. And not surprisingly, that is exactly what we see on the first big day that God began to permanently pour out his Holy Spirit on a whole bunch of, what do you know, dispersed Jews who had yet come together for the festival of Pentecost. Point two in your outline. Now, I assume many of you will know the history. Jesus had been crucified to effectively pay for all our sin. He had been raised bodily to show that he, yes he is the Christ God's chosen king and then he ascended into heaven to his throne how do you know all this was true and real and legitimate well back in the day when a new victorious king ascends to the throne he would customarily give gifts divide the spoils of the kingdom that he conquered and overtaken he would ascend the throne and give out the booty to all all his people and that's basically what happens at Pentecost. Jesus' 12 apostles were cowering in some upstairs room in Jerusalem when all of a sudden there was a sound like a rushing wind and the spirit represented by tongues of fire came and rested on each one of them. Just like the spirit was on Moses, but then it kind of got divided amongst the leaders. They did what the spirit would normally inspire, namely start speaking the words of God. And in this case, they did it in languages that Jews from all nations under heaven could understand. Now, some people weirdly, I think, accuse them of doing some sort of drunk party trick. I don't know how that happens. And so Peter, the head apostle who a few moments ago was terrified, now boldly preaches what is frankly one of the best sermons in the Bible outside what Jesus has preached. And it's the, the, the big sermon in Acts chapter 2 which uh, I'd love to go through, verse by verse, but otherwise we'll be here for hours, so I'm not going to do it. The gist of Peter's sermon is this. Jesus is the Christ, and by believing him, you can have your sins forgiven, be united to God, by the Spirit, by the way, and have everlasting life. That's pretty much a super, super overly condensed version of Peter's great sermon in Acts chapter 2. It is not a sermon about God the Holy Spirit. It is a sermon enabled by the outpouring of God the Holy Spirit who points people to Jesus, thereby giving salvation in his name. The pouring out of the Spirit is done, in this case, as a proof that Jesus has indeed ascended the throne of God and is therefore the saving Lord and Christ. Jesus had one salvation and kingship, and in pouring out the Spirit, he was giving the gift of what he'd achieved to all those upon whom the Spirit came, taking what he had accomplished and giving it individually 
to sinners. And so at the end of the sermon, Peter says, and I'll put the words on the screen, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. There's the application, salvation. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. You see, it's not just partially for 68 elders plus two who are a little way off. It's total. And for anyone and everyone the Lord will call. Salvation the forgiveness of sins and the ability to start walking right with, right with the Lord goes hand in hand with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, by the way, if you're here this morning and you haven't repented and been baptised in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if you haven't therefore yet received the gift of the Holy Spirit, there's always the possibility that the Lord is actually calling you right now on the very basis of the fact that you happen to be here. Uh, if you do sense that's you, and I don't know every one of you in your hearts, if you do sense that's you, then don't put it off. Come speak to me afterwards. Write it on the connect form that you want to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, some people might be a bit surprised by this, but I have absolutely no theological uh, hesitation in doing an impromptu baptism for someone who turns and repents and put their faith in the Lord and says, I want to be baptised. I'd do it. We'd have a baptism off the cuff this morning. I'd have to get some water from there, but we'd do it. But not only does God the Spirit change our hearts such that we can recognise the truth of the ascended Christ and find salvation in his name, he also, by the very fact of his indwelling, gives us absolute assurance of our complete salvation. He guarantees our eternal inheritance, for he is what the Bible calls the seal of our salvation. Here it is, right from the source. I said we've been jumping around the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul writes, Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, and the word anointed just means covered or poured upon. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Here it again, Ephesians chapter 1. And you also, that is you Gentiles, were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The point is simple and clear. That God the Spirit indwells us is not only the cause of our salvation, but is also the guarantee, the assurance of being united to God permanently. Now again, in a room this size, uh, it's almost always the case that there's at least one person, and frankly I wouldn't be surprised if there's more than one person, who actually somehow need to hear this really strongly and take this to heart. Perhaps your laxity towards God's word or, and prayer makes you feel like a bit of a fake Christian. Perhaps this week you've messed up minorly or majorly with anger, with cowardice, failure to take responsibility, pornography, such a cancer, trashy reading or so-called romantic novels, your consumption of alcohol, the greed that you harbour, which is idolatry, with flagrantly disobeying road rules, with 
disappointing your spouse, family or friends on account of your selfish words or choices. It can be so easy to feel like a failure, to feel like, you know, I'm the odd one out. I'm not like all those other Christians who are doing better than I am. Which is always funny because for those that feel like that, there's probably someone two rows away who feels exactly the same. Or perhaps it's something worse. Perhaps it's like, you know what, living in an obedience to Jesus, it sucks, it's too hard, I want to chuck in the towel, I feel like giving up, I'm getting out of here. I want to run and hide so I don't have to talk to any of those church people because I'll feel embarrassed. Well, if you fall somewhere in that mess, the question I ask is very simple. Are you happy to declare that Jesus is Lord and do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? It's pretty simple. Jesus Lord, yeah, he's, he's, he's the boss. God raised him from the dead, yeah, I'm pretty convinced. If the answer is yes, then consider again what the Spirit makes certain. I'll highlight the words now. God himself... God himself considers that the indwelling of his spirit in the individual believer, he considers that his own personal down payment, his own deposit, giving him ownership of the saved sinner, both now and for all eternity, guaranteeing what is to come. You see, his spirit not only saves us, but guarantees that our salvation is absolute. You have no reason to be afraid. The very fact that you feel inadequate in your godliness is one of the things that God the Spirit does to those he indwells. To those upon whom God has set his seal as a guarantee. If the risen King Jesus gives the gift of his spirit, well, then it's a gift for life. Yeah, Jesus knew all the sinful things you and I would do, all the fails you would make. He knew all those things before you were born and he chose to give you his spirit as a guarantee of your eternity with him. I've been a Christian 22 years. Periodically, I still catch myself marvelling in in something, I don't know what you call it, awesome, A-W-E, awesome wonder, that God would give that gift to me. Why me? But I don't want to sound like, why me? You know, like, wow, well, that's pretty amazing. As an angry Jewish atheist who loathed and despised Christians, well, there's no doubt in my mind that it had to have been God who changed my heart and turned me to Christ by his spirit. I'd have never, ever done that by myself. And I'm thankful that it's him and not me, because if it's him, it can't fail. If it's me, I'd screw it up. But if it's him, it's a seal. It's guaranteed. It's eternal. You see, God the Holy Spirit applies Jesus' work to the individual sinner. That's one of the most profound, important statements that we can make regarding the Spirit. And it results in absolute salvation, the guarantee of eternal life. Very easy for us to get ahead of ourselves and think of God the Holy Spirit in terms of the way he acts and works in the church and in the life of the believer, but this is actually far more foundationally important to grasp before anything else. God the Holy Spirit applies Jesus' work to the individual sinner. This results in absolute salvation, the guarantee of eternal life. And this, of course, has huge implications for the church 
But I'm just going to choose two of the big ones and spend a bit of time spilling them out because they're very relevant to us here and now. Implication number one, firstly, it's important to realise that there is an inherent danger in apologetics. Now, what is apologetics? <laughs> it sounds like the word apology, saying sorry for something, but it's not. It's actually, it comes from uh, the Greek word that means to make a defence. So the gospel is proclaimed, ideally, people might have issues with it, and so you can defend it by appealing to reason, logic, revelation, whatever. It's a very good and very important thing to do. Apologetics are important. Uh, we saw even just a few weeks ago, when we are going through our sermon series in Acts chapter 18, there's that guy Apollos who was really helpful because he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate. Mind you, it does also tell us in that passage that that was to benefit not the unbelieving Jews, but actually to benefit those who had already been saved and therefore were firmed up and encouraged in, in what they'd come to believe. You see, it can always be tempting to think if we get some really good argument to whatever is blocking someone from turning and putting their faith in Christ, if we get that silver bullet, you know, that just smacks them down with, with logic and reasoning, then perhaps they'll turn and be saved. We get tempted into thinking that you can argue someone into the kingdom of heaven. There are people out there who want to get PhDs in theology because they think more people will listen to them if they've got the letters behind their name. But it is God the Holy Spirit, and God is one and God alone, it is God the Holy Spirit who applies the merits of Christ and unites us to the triune God. He alone changes the heart. So far more than apologetics, we're much better off, A, praying, which I'll get to in the next implication, but B, preaching the gospel, setting forth the truth plainly rather than defending it. You've actually got to preach the gospel in order to have something to defend, right? You've actually got to start with proclamation. If you want to see people saved, don't learn good apologetics first, learn good gospel presentation first and prayer. Sadly, even in Sydney Anglican circles, there are a number of influential movers and shaker types who keep wanting to win the world for Christ by downplaying the less popular truths in the gospel and in God's word. And with great intelligence and PhDs thinking they'll win the culture by showing how well Christianity answers some of the felt needs within our world. Jesus himself calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth, who the world cannot accept. You can read that in John 14, 17. And so if anything, these so-called apologists kind of work against the spirit or end up sort of putting themselves in his place. As a matter of fact, one of the saddest things about the history of the church is that especially in medieval Catholicism, people kept wanting to put the church in the place of the Holy Spirit, to be the one who dispenses the grace of Jesus on his behalf. Now there is a place and a very important place for showing how the gospel addresses the felt needs of our culture, but it can easily be given too much of a place. The gospel isn't so much about transforming culture as it is about taking people out of culture and into the kingdom which is not of this world. Be unashamed in preaching the gospel don't worry if you don't have smart, intelligent answers 
for the frankly tried and tested rebuttals that come from those whose hearts are hard. Prayerfully, shamelessly, preach the gospel. God the Holy Spirit, he's the great evangelist, he's the converter. Rely on him. Lastly, if ever there was a reason to assert that evangelism is useless without prayer, well, the fact that the Spirit enables salvation would have to be it. No doubt many of you are familiar with Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in John 3. Here's how it goes. I'm going to go through it, but now we've got Ezekiel 36 in the back of our mind, and hopefully some of you did this in growth group this week. You'll see it with a little bit more clarity. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night because there's a Pharisee and he doesn't want to be seen. <laughs> Such a... If someone does that, there's a good chance they'll be saved, right? If they're worried about what their friends will think, praise God. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, starts off a conversation. Jesus cuts to the heart, verse 3, and says, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus, we take him for a dummy. He does get stuff wrong, but this is not one of them. Verse 4, how can someone be born when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. He's not stupid. He knows biology and physics, right? It's idiomatic. It's saying something that everyone feels in their own heart. To enter the kingdom of God, it's like we've got to be made perfectly innocent. But how can that be? Look at my life. Look at my history. Look at all the things I wish I could have done differently. How can I get a clean start? Is it possible for me to be pure? How can I enter the mother's womb again? You can't do that. I can't be made pure. I can't be born again. I can't have the slate wiped clean. And so Jesus answered, verse 5, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Where do you see water and the Spirit paired together? Well, in Ezekiel 36, where God talks about cleansing people, i.e. forgiving them, and changing their hearts to, to make them want to obey God. And God had said he can do that in Ezekiel 36. And Nicodemus, Israel's teacher, probably should have known about that. That's the bit that he should have known. Jesus continues, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again, i.e. because you read it in Ezekiel 36. But then he adds this weird little last bit. The wind blows wherever it pleases. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if there's actually someone here among us today who knows the wordplay going on here. There's enough people who probably know that. Who knows why, what wind can also mean? Put up your hand. Don't be shy. I know there's at least a couple of you. Yo! That's the Greek word is pneuma, which also means spirit or breath. And it's the same in Greek as it is in Hebrew. Ruach, spirit or breath. Jesus says the spirit, the wind, blows wherever it wants. You hear a sound, but cannot tell where it comes or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. In other words, Jesus is saying, you can be born again. You can have your slate wiped clean. God the Spirit can do it, but you can't control how that's going to happen. It's one of the great sadnesses about many churches. They think they can control God the Spirit. If we do this music or do this work or say this prayer or whatever then god the spirit will, will, will strong arm him into doing this that or the other right it's like they don't believe their lord jesus says you can't know where the wind's going to blow so what would you do well obviously you would say dear god please make it blow on them on her on him i can't control it you can prayer 
is the first and biggest and most important step in evangelism. Now, having said that, there's one final thing that will almost but not quite contradict what I've just said. You cannot control the Spirit. You cannot know where he will blow. However, all throughout the New Testament, there is one thing that you consistently see about the moving of God the Holy Spirit, and that is he moves and works when the gospel is preached. He moves and works when the gospel is preached. Not when the music's amazing and there's lights and fake smoke or whatever, when the gospel is preached. So apart from prayer, preaching the gospel which is actually the definition of evangelism, is really important when it comes to evangelism. With that, let me conclude in prayer. If you've got questions, comments, you can uh, hit me up afterwards or put them in the connect form. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you, God, the Holy Spirit, for your person and work and for the way that you do what with us is impossible, that you take the heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh enabling us to live in obedience to your word in our case to the ultimate word the lord jesus christ heavenly father we thank you that you unite us with the son and therefore we are united with you father son and holy spirit by the work of the holy spirit within and among us heavenly father we pray for those known to us who as yet do not know you for they are not yet indwelt by your spirit. We pray earnestly that you would cause that wind to blow into their hearts, that people would turn and repent and recognise Jesus as Lord on account of the Spirit's work, and therefore receive salvation and absolute salvation, standing firm both now and to the last day. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.